and welcome to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry, and this week is a review review where I review some of the guests that I've had, some of the stuff that I've learned, and then do a book review and then do a review of my tabs, which is a silly little thing that is like a window into my brain at a given time. So my guests in these last couple weeks were Andrew Delantonio, Angela Patrick Silva, and Matthew Reagan. Matthew talked a lot about creating narrative as opposed to trying to sell something, even when the job is a commercial one. So finding out from a client, who are you? And I thought that I've I've often thought actually about the company that he works for, Digital Obscura, that that is, or the other way around, Obscura Digital, that that is a very, very interesting way to conduct business. That you start not with what do you want to sell, not with what do you want to tell people, not with the sizzle kind of a thing, I guess that, that would be the way to say it, but the stake to ask them, what, who are you, first of all? And what do you want to convey? And a really interesting piece about that is then, well, what do you do with those clients that don't want that? And he was, he said, they don't even come to the door. If you're really transparent about who you are authentically, if you know who you are, what your business is authentically, then people kind of self-select. They don't want you if you're not someone who's going to do that kind of razzle-dazzle sell things. They do want you if you're doing interesting, complex work that is deep. I just thought that was really interesting. So it's kind of two birds in one stone. Like there's no reason not to be authentic. In fact, not being authentic will will and not being transparent about who you are will attract the wrong people to do business with you. So now you have to winnow those people out. So it's just a very interesting conscious uh, place to to start that which is how they start all their projects and that all their projects are storytelling. They also blur the lines because they take both commercial and art projects because to them it's not really about limiting one or donating the other. It's about the story. I mean, it's about keeping the doors open, getting everybody paid, but it's about making the commercial story into art. And as a creative agency, making their art commercially successful. Matthew had just finished a glorious projection on the merchandise mart in Chicago. And the videos are incredible. And the scale is incredible. And listening to him talk about what it took backstage to make that is a really interesting and complex journey. I asked him whether he's ever found any clients too boring. And he said, no, sometimes they spice up jobs and maybe they could spice one up too much for clients. But because they're so collaborative, he can't recall that ever happening. Because if they add something in a client, it's not aligned with the client and how they feel about themselves. They just change it. So a lot of his process and a lot of the beginning process with the way that they work with their clients is co-creation. So they take a long time in that narrative process, asking who who their client is, and then finding out what the story is. And then they create a schematic, and they use a process he called Kanban. And one of the things is to find out very early on what are our knowns, what are our unknowns, 
our known unknowns and our unknown unknowns. I think I have all four of those. And I've been flirting with the idea of just uh, reviewing what I'm doing, (laughs) thinking, what are those about whatever project I'm on? What are those four things, those four lists? And then he comes up with a couple of solutions, like what is maybe a $5,000 solution, there might be a $50,000 solution. So they have a couple of ways that they can proceed. And then he said they budget and they achieve. <laughs> I was like, that is wild. It's, it's so interesting to think of that create the creation pieces in some ways the most certain, the most, not the easiest exactly, but kind of the easiest in that now that they know what to do and what direction to go in, now they just have to do it. And then I asked him a bit about, you know, creating, creating pieces of software that will go to other things. And he talked about software creation and coding as a recipe, which I have found very enlightening and a very engaging way to think about it. And I've been thinking about it ever since whenever I use digital products, I think, well, yeah, okay, the recipe that went into this is, and then they figure out milestones and dependencies and have a certain amount of improv. And it was a peek behind stage in a thing that that I was felt very honored to be able to see and hear from somebody who does that kind of grand work, especially because it seems very futuristic. If you if you see the Merchandise Mart or you go to Obscure Digital and look at their other projects, everything about it feels like those people are a block ahead of us all in the future. So it was really, really cool to hear how they achieve that. I also spoke with Angela and how she is a radiologist and how her first love was meteorology and how in college you kind of fall into things that you love and then find out maybe aren't fully aligned with you or maybe you don't love all the things about it. So a little bit of, uh, we kind of touched on sunk cost fallacy in the in that, you know, just because you've got a degree in that doesn't mean that that has to be what you do, which is something a lot of us adults know and something we almost never really make clear to kids in college. There's just a huge pressure for them to pick something or to not screw up or that what they pick is, you know, has to get them a job. We, we kind of speak at odds with that. So it's really interesting to hear her reflections on her own experience doing that. She really wanted to be in radiology because it's science plus the flexibility of certain kinds of healthcare. And that's one of them. And as a parent, and she just loves the science part of it. So it was an, a perfect fit for her. She also talked a little bit about the other, like another part of the work, the emotional part of the work that healthcare workers do. And I was pretty blown away by this, the deep compassion and the act of knowing things about the worst moments of people's lives, but being not just unable to tell them, unable to show anything in your demeanor that would indicate that something is wrong because things have to proceed in the right order. All these support people support doctors who make decisions who then have to sort of compile those decisions and then talk to the patient. So they can't be giving half information mid-journey 
for that patient. So that kind of challenge I found really mind-blowing and of course reflected on all the times I have interacted with various healthcare workers. And I haven't had terrible, terrible news, but just things, you know, that might have been worrisome or weird and how amazingly everybody kept themselves in check, never giving it away, especially because if there are other decisions that can be made or mitigating circumstances that they don't know, I mean, you could be terrified over something that turns out to be not really that concerning. So it's just incredible to think of all the all the thought that goes into that, all the all the consideration that goes into that. She also talked about her donation, her, her charity work. And so she is extremely active in anti-cancer charities or can, cancer health charities, curing charities. And there is one in particular that's very dear to her heart that is about bone marrow and platelets. And you can, you can donate bone marrow in a reasonably painless way, which was very new to me. And I'm going to go do that. And talked about the various different ways they uh, she and her husband do things like shave uh, shave their hair for for various causes and and other kinds of events and also brought up the concept of donation fatigue and being super mindful of that in yourself and those in your immediate community because you really have to manage the amount of charitable work you do to avoid that. And then lastly she said a just a lovely thing which was surround yourself with people who support you. I don't think we can say that enough to ourselves and to each other. So to be that person and to look for and retain those people. Then I also talked to Andrew Delantonio, who is a music professor in Texas, and he had some observations about like very deep management. And by that, I mean, not just tasks, not just goals, you know, and and employee reviews and the rest of this, but deep, deep management beyond what you see is what you get. And he had some insights about how people get stuck in their jobs. And he was specifically talking about academia, but I see this everywhere that unless we've had help, unless we've had someone like Andrew helping us and, and cluing us into this, the society, media, schools, none of this, parents, none of this really helps us generally, a lot of us, I would say by the, the vast majority of us, with the knowledge that if you get into a job, you will, you may well get stuck in that job. After five years, you may find that you are, yes, you're getting your little increase every year, but you're not making any career jumps. And yet at the same time, now you feel settled, you might have a family, the risk of moving to somewhere else. And I feel like, you know, actually I blamed schools and parents and society, but I'm actually going to blame businesses and management and management is a concept and management how it's taught. We are not taught and I just did a management degree, we are not taught to move people through. And we are not taught to grow them to mentor them, and to teach them. And more and more, I feel like this is a massive disservice because we require of them that they grow and be taught. And we, we shouldn't be requiring that they're just compliant workers because we actually don't want that. And we often, if we are compliant workers, we often find ourselves poorly treated. If we say we want compliant workers, we often are frustrated that they're not um, 
producing or becoming more productive or learning anything, but we set up that system and we have the system that we seem to want. We have a reflection of of what we have set up. So his observations about that, I thought were really enlightened and insightful. And how we want to structure roles rather than personalities, management as being a nurturing and contributing kind of action, and that we also want to encourage that nurturing and contributing in our teams, because the other thing that happens if they if that's not allowed to happen is burnout. And then he also talked about tackling deeply ingrained beliefs within an organization, like institutional racism, or ableism, or any of the isms. And he has talked about a group coming in to really challenge those and how the group that comes in says this is not going to be a pleasant process, and it's not going to be a quick one. And I really respect people and and places that do that far more than like these three easy tricks will let you that's not there's no easy trick. There's not three of them. God knows. There may be three things you can try, but you're going to have to go back to them. And they're going to hurt if they're real. They're going to hurt. It's going to hurt to look at how you've treated people without realizing it. And it's going to hurt to find the to hear to hear from those people, and to hear the ways in which it can be improved, especially if you feel like you've got grievances too. So that's just very interesting. And a lot of stuff about gatekeeping and the fear behind gatekeeping, and the courage that it takes to get to, to stop. And then on teaching itself, and he definitely manages as a teaching kind of pursuit. And As a teacher, though, he's really worked on, and I actually say as manager, he's worked on designing instruction and this this new way of looking at accessible learning, accessible instruction, so that for people who have learning disabilities or something that impedes their learning in a, what we would think of as like a normal college class or normal high school class or something like that, rather than saying they get an exception in order to accommodate the disability, what if they explored multiple pathways and avenues of acquisition and mastery. In other words, when you get a diagnosis of a learning disability, all that's saying is that on the continuum of the way people learn, you're over here, we think. Seems to be. This seems to be causing you trouble. What about those people that are at 49%? And there's loads of them. They could really benefit from a different conception of learning and mastery. If everybody is made to do those little fill in the bubble exams, except the people that get exceptions because of a diagnosis of learning disability, just under where that disability is considered to be real are a ton of people for whom those bubble tests are very, very difficult and put them at a disadvantage, but they're not given any other options. So how amazing would it be to agree on what mastery looks like and to agree on what the outcomes should be and to allow people to find their way there or demonstrate that they've found their way there in a couple different ways. So the other thing that he brought up that I thought was profound was what happens when you do everything right, right? You're trying to do everything right. You're really empowering people. You're really discussing. You're doing what he's talking about. You're really making sure that everybody's at the table. But then he said, it's great to 
encourage people and allow them to advocate for themselves. But when you do that, you have to ask, am I letting myself off the hook by telling people, hey, just speak up when there's a problem. You are empowered to speak up rather than me saying, I'm still discriminating against you and it makes you have to speak up. What if I didn't discriminate against you? And I just thought that was a almost a 360 degree look at these behaviors. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks because of the amount of times that I feel like when we get to the point of encouraging and advocating and awareness that we've arrived, his point is you absolutely haven't. And that's really, or we absolutely haven't. And then he said, it puts people in the position of having to say, to the world or to this organization, I have to spend extra emotional energy I don't have trying to convince you that I am a human being. Stepping back from that, I find myself looking at things that I'm involved in, things that I'm interested in, things that I'm creating and saying, where are those places where it's not open? Where are those places where someone has to do that? or it's not easy for them to do it. I mean, even even something as simple as all these places I've worked where we've talked about grievance policies. What kind of an awful hoop does someone have to go through to get there? What is the process afterwards? What's going to happen to them? And why not make it so that it is so easy and so friendly. And I actually think a lot of grievances would go away if the thought were front loaded into how grievances are dealt with rather than that idea of you have to spend extra emotional energy you don't have trying to convince us to treat you as a human being. So those are my three guests, a lot of super deep reflections. And honestly, all my guests, I walk away with blown away, my mind blown by what they do and, and how gracefully they do it. And the sort of the they often talk and I often ask them about like the struggles of it. But where we are right now is exactly where we are. And that moment and finding out about how people how deeply people have thought about where they are right now, I always find really, really beautiful. The book review that I'm going to do, I had a couple. I'll do one of my other books next time. It was really a toss-up between this one and one that I started out by rage reading and then ended up grudgingly having some respect for. But there's one that I read that I just really enjoyed the whole way through, and that is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. She is well-known, well-respected as an author and speaker. She she got a TED Talk uh, seven or eight years ago on vulnerability, and it just shot her into the stratosphere as far as people like paying attention and being interested in her work. She's a social worker and social scientist, and she does a lot of work in vulnerability and pain and shame. And my own personal favorite with all of this is In the Workplace. And, and this book in particular is about this In the Workplace. First, I'm going to say that I love her work. I, I really do. I think she's on the right side of humanity. And she's eloquent and enjoyable and funny and engaging and, and very approachable. So I like everything about her work. The criticism, the sort of critical thinking piece I'm going to say that I always get stuck on with her is a couple places where she defines words or redefines words and uses them in ways that I either find like debatable or I find it a little too sort of um, 
I don't want to say hokey, but I'm going to say hokey to use like stuff. You know, she actually sometimes her stuff feels a little bit like a motivational poster, you know, keep hanging in there with like the way that she redefines words. I'll go back to it in a little bit. But so she talks about these mechanisms of management in organizations that indicate that pain is happening. And anytime there's pain happening, you're losing, you're losing people, you're losing engagement, interest, attention, and you're definitely losing attention. Because when there's a pain situation, the people involved are spending time on the pain, they're spending time avoiding it, they're spending time dealing with it, they're spending time getting over it, they're spending time afraid of the next time this is going to happen. She also says that blame, she recasts that in a way that I actually like is the dis is merely the discharge of discomfort and pain. I love that. I think that's if that's, that is not so much a redefinition as a perfect definition, in my opinion. And she also says it's the in- inverse of accountability. She talks about guilt versus shame versus humiliation. And here's one of those places she redefines them. She's against shame. Frankly, we all should be shame being sort of this corrosive self contempt or contempt of others. Guilt, she actually finds useful as as a tool. And there I'm kind of like, well, her redefining guilt involves buying into her redefinition of guilt, which is I think she uses it more of like an idea of a motivational kind of kind of behavior that when you feel guilt, it's a sign to you that you need to examine what's happened. And I don't totally disagree, but she assigns a harmlessness to guilt that I don't entirely buy. I I find there's a lot of overlap with shame, especially because they really are often understood to be synonymous. And then the third one is humiliation, which is kind of interesting. So she defines humiliation as a public example of shaming, like sort of more the the event is humiliation. Again, I'm not 100% sure I buy that. But I also can see her point pretty, pretty well with that. Like I'm kind of willing to, to, to go with that one. But she lists some very interesting organizational examples of shame. And boy, are they familiar with places that I've worked. Perfectionism in ourselves, but in others, expecting perfection from others. And having been told by numerous bosses that I was supposed to have a 0% error rate, something that no human can achieve, that is a colossal weight to bear. And I never had the perspective of seeing it as an organization showing that it saw shame within itself. And that would have helped a lot. Instead, I took it internally, took it very personally, because of course, it was meant to be personal. And it took a long time to really understand a lot of these dynamics. And that's one that I've seen a lot. Favoritism. Oh, my God, I've seen that. And especially in family businesses, does that ever come up? Gossiping. And I'm going to have to fess up. I have absolutely done that. If you consider gossiping to be telling the story of your experience, if you consider it to be telling mean things about others, I have not. So in that respect, I've never, I've never done it. it again, it's a definition. But talking about other people and my experiences with other people, I feel like I have definitely spent time with that as a release of other unbelievable stresses at organizations that were not grappling with the huge weight of shame that was contained within it. So 
it is an outlet. It's not a healthy one. And I can totally see that back channeling, same thing where you, there, although I've actually worked in places where I was very committed to not back channeling. So I was the last word. So people would back channel to me. And I would seek out the people involved and have the hard conversations. And I found that to be really rewarding. I also found it to be a really helpful skill as a parent. It was one of those places where I domain shifted. But I definitely have experienced that in organizations. It, it's interesting because that was when I really felt like I had reflected on and I was mindful of because of the part that I played or refused to play or had a an answer to a reaction to that I tried to make positive or at least peaceful to, to bring in peace. Comparison, self-worth, if your self-worth or your worth as an employee is only defined by productivity, that doesn't actually let you ideate. It doesn't let you be creative. It doesn't let you find other ways to do work or faster ways to do work. You have to go through a period of slow to learn something new. You have to go through a learning dip. Seth Godin's G-O-D-I-N, his book on the learning dip. I've never seen it not be the case. Let me just put it that way. So maybe he doesn't have all the answers, but boy, is he interesting in his observations. So if your self-worth or the worth of you as an employee is only your productivity at any given slice of time versus overall versus knowing that you're worthy, that is an element of organizational shame. And then, of course, the big ones that get may or may not blow up or may get covered over, but harassment, discrimination, rankism or power over, bullying, blaming, teasing, and cover-ups. And then she talks about shame as a management tool because, of course, a lot of people get a lot of mileage out of this. And the toxicity of public criticism and reprimands. Again, anybody that receives that spends a ton of time having to get over it and then trying to avoid it and then trying to recover from it. That is time not spent figuring out how to best throw the next event, how to better handle the flood of records come in. All of the things that the business actually needs to survive don't happen because the individuals themselves feel like they need to survive in what has become a very hostile environment. She has a sobering statistic followed by a lovely one. 85% of us can recall a moment at school in particular where we were shamed and it changed how we felt about ourselves. The nicer one is that 90% of us, so a few more, not a lot, but a few more of us, can recall a time at school where a teacher or coach helped us believe in ourselves and that helped change how we feel about ourselves. They don't cancel each other out. They're both legitimate examples. And of course, all this stuff is reinforced in places other than school. And school was over a number of years with a lot of different people. But it really is interesting how visceral we remember this stuff. And If we still have an emotional response to it, if we still have a physical response to it, then we are reliving it every single time. And that becomes a way we see ourselves. And if it was that first one, it is still doing us harm. So forget about business productivity, just human being able to be and to feel like 
trying to convince you that they're a human being. Even just that, it's worth looking at and it's worth examining some of the stuff and it's worth doing away with this the mean. It's, it's just, it just is. I shouldn't have to ever convince anybody that doing away with mean stuff is a good idea. So she also talks about empathy, that, that there doesn't have to be a perfect technique. The message is, I understand, and you are not alone. And that was interesting because a lot of people, a lot of places I've heard suggest not say I understand because it implies that you've been through this. And so sometimes, you know, I mean, I've often said to people, I have no idea what you're going through, but I'm here. She had a different response to that and does a lot of research on this. So I think at some point next next time I have to Next time I'm finding myself in a place like this, maybe be a little more mindful of that and try saying, I understand this is awful. You are not alone kind of a thing versus versus trying to back or sideways off saying, I have no idea what you're going through. She also says that the cures for all this stuff is self-compassion and curiosity. And that's really true. And I've talked about this in other places. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first because you're no good to the people around you if you are yourself in distress. She had some good tools, a task checklist, and and then she's got another one, a braving worksheet that she invites you to go onto her website and do, and then ranked employee evaluations, maybe making them two conversations instead of one, the first being sort of an initial thing saying, I love this about her. She has this whole thing where she says, the story I'm telling myself, where she will say that, since everything, <laughs> we're, we're back to Matthew Reagan, since everything is storytelling, all of our assumptions, all of our beliefs, these are all stories we tell ourselves. And they may be workable enough, or they may be completely wrong. And it is an unbelievably enlightening thing. It builds real relationships to say, the story I'm telling myself is this to someone, because it lets them say, oh, wow, that is not what I meant to say, what I meant to convey at all, or well, half of that's kind of right. The story I'm telling myself is that it's a really, it's a really brilliant way to avoid there being a reality in a lot of these stories when there isn't, there's multiple, they're subjective. She does some really interesting things about making subjective values actionable, which I really valued because it's one thing to say things are subjective all the time. And a lot of them are. It's one thing to hold people accountable for things that are subjective, in which case, how are you going to do that? Well, one person's way is the right way, and we all have to guess what that is. But she does some things where she starts with values, pick three, and determine three behaviors that exhibit these values, then use what is called the Likert scale. So five to one, always to never. Things like, I set clear boundaries, I lean into difficult conversations, I talk to people, not about them. Those might all be examples of integrity, if that was one of one of the values that you hold. And then that's what you should use for a major chunk of employee reviews. And that was an order of magnitude of brilliance beyond any employee or team management review that I've ever experienced. It's worth doing. And it's certainly worth trying, especially because at that point, you now have a baseline. It's it's qualitative, qualitative and quantitative, but it gets closer to being able to assess the quality of relationships. Because the thing is, they're not quali- quali- quantifiable. They are subjective. So on the one hand, people that are analytical dismiss them. On the other hand, those are the very people that often have to learn this. It's easy then for people who 
are abusing the system or have other issues that bring in a negative pulling down of relationships, if you can't really come back to them and talk about them in some actionable, quantitative way, people get away with a lot and say, well, you can't really examine it. So this is, this helps you sort of come a little closer to the middle, which I always think is, is probably a good place to be. So she's got a story. This is another thing I kind of went, uh, I kind of had other thoughts about, well, not really, just sort of additional thoughts about. She's got this story about her daughter having a school tool that they used, which was a marble jar. And that was every time you are kind to someone, you are putting marbles in their jar. And every time you are unkind, you are removing marbles. And I read that and I had this sudden realization that this is in fact a rather adorable elementary school version of Marley's Ghost from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. At the very beginning, when Scrooge is first getting haunted, he doesn't get haunted by the Christmas past, Christmas future, Christmas present ghosts at first. The first ghost he sees that warns him the others are coming is the ghost of his former partner, Jacob Marley. And Jacob Marley absolutely terrifies him, which leaves him in a vulnerable state, which actually allows him to learn and prepares him for the ghosts. And Jacob Marley is barely able to drag himself across the floor, even as ghost, because he is weighted down with chains and cash boxes, I believe, if memory serves. And Scrooge says, why are you all chained up? Why can't, why can't you just take those off? And Marley says, uh, who put you, who put you in, in this? Who, who, you know, imprisoned you in these chains, these heavy chains? And Marley says, I did it to myself. Every time I made life worse for someone else, I lovingly hand forged one of these heavy links and now I'm doomed. And I thought it's really interesting that marble jar, which granted, I wouldn't suggest you let elementary school kids start thinking about how weighted down they'll be in hell. Um, but, but as a concept, it was really interesting to see the same kind of sense of it that in fact, I know I've referred to it before as like another nail in the coffin, like a, a time you could have made something better, but instead you decided to get a little power hit. Or instead you decided to let the status quo happen, or instead you decided to, I guess those are really it, right? Either you get a power hit by someone else's misery, or you're just so inert that you didn't make anything better. You, you bystanded in some way that you put another nail in the coffin of your relationship, that you forge another link in the sort of drag down to hell as a ghost, or you take marbles out of their jar, like you're actually removing marbles. I think the reason that the chain one is more affecting to me is because now you've got those marbles back. Although, yeah, I don't know. So there's kind of a, it, it, it's, it's almost more neutral with the marbles, whereas in fact, you've caused pain to them. And you've actually caused pain to yourself. You just don't recognize it. Anyway, uh, that's how I think that's how I think Charles Dickens got into Brene Brown's book. She also does a beautiful exercise that I've been doing nonstop. You know, it's funny, I've actually done it for a long time. It's part of improv. And it's one of those domain shifts where I started to do it in other places. But she eloquently talks about it and talks about watching a group or various groups go through this. So 
I was aware of it and I've used it, but ever since reading the book and, and more importantly, reading those examples of groups going through this, going through this exercise, that stuck with me for some reason in ways that the others, the other example, the other times I've really, you know, been aware of this doesn't. Anyway, to get to it, it's about just think of somebody incredibly difficult to deal with, somebody who frustrates you, someone who, whatever, and say out loud and think of them that they are doing the best they can, that no one is deliberately doing poorly. It's too much work, quite honestly. No one. So but what seems to be a problem for you means that they've got and this this is part of how I, why I'm aware of this. One of my favorite blogs is Wait But Why. And the guy who writes that did a beautiful thing on procrastination and that procrastination is the weight of something that is so much worse than procrastination. You've got some fear, some unexamined anxiety or dread or terror that you just don't even want to look at so badly that you shy away from it and procrastinate. Well, that's true here too. If you're finding somebody really difficult, that behavior is less painful to them for some reason than building the relationship, joining the community, doing what was asked. There's something else happening and it puts you in a compassionate state of mind about yourself, really, too. Like, I'm doing my best. And there's one guy that I loved. It took him a while to, he was pretty resistant to this, right? One of those guys who would rather think that people were idiots. And we all fall into that because that's a satisfying little power hit that we get when we think about it. But then he thought a little bit longer about it, really tried her exercise. And then he said, oh my God, I've got to move the rock. And she was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I keep kicking that rock and hurting my foot. I've got to move the rock. If this person is doing the best they can, but is for whatever reason, unable to do this task that we've been talking about over and over and over and over and over again, maybe I need to find out what they're good at, give them more of that and give this thing that they really are unable to do to somebody else. That's all. That's all. If it was me, it would be accounting. I can do it, but it's difficult and I'm miserable. But there's lots of people for whom it's not difficult and they're not miserable. Please give them the accounting. Give me the editing. I'd be happy to do that. So she also suggests that anxiety is contagious, but so is calm. And I loved that too. I, I thought that was a really important thing to remember because I've worked in a lot of places and I was going to say a lot of nonprofits because they have this issue, but honestly, the for profits I've worked to have had this issue too. And that is that the anxiety is contagious. And it's up to you. We don't have control over other people, but we do have control over ourselves. And we can be the ones that either draw a boundary so as not to get infected by other people's anxiety, or bring in our own calm and help infect everyone else with calm. We can do it. It can be done. It's worth doing. And that just leaves me about three or four minutes to talk about my tabs, which is just as well. I have so many up. It's not shocking to people who know me, but I'm sure it's distressing to people who hate it. I have Instagram up because a friend of my daughter's, a young woman that I met when she was a girl of five, taught me how to use Instagram. I don't know. I'm, I'm usually really good about learning software. I, I'm very comfortable with tech. I'm very comfortable with software. I think it was just the idea of, oh, crap, not another social media I have to learn and will drain away my attention. 
And I just didn't want to have to go through, honestly, I didn't want to have to go through the period of sucking at it. And so she said, hey, I would be happy to help you with it. So she helped me set that up. So Instagram is soon to come. What's funny is I haven't touched it in the last week since she taught me how to do it, but at least I know what to do now. And I've got a bunch of YouTube videos up. Oh, I made some YouTube videos and some Facebook, same videos actually on Facebook and YouTube. And you're able to put like a little end card in and I have these videos up to teach me how to put that end card in and I haven't, but please go see my videos. Um, One series is called 52 Seconds and it's because there's 52 weeks in a year. And I just did like 52 seconds of a little mini talk about stuff. Try to do deep stuff, interesting stuff, stuff that's caught my eye. A lot of stuff about self-management. Anyway, whatever. I've, there's stuff and there, and it's only 52 seconds out of your life. So if you find it useful, do subscribe and uh, do say hello to me. And ask questions. Ask me if there's anything else you'd like to hear, because I'll cover it in 52 seconds. And I have, oh, I have my, so I have some funny, I think they're funny, and that's all that matters, uh, t-shirt designs, which is another thing I was using Instagram for. So I was making those, and if you ever want to see them, they are at, um, spreadshirt.com incandescent wombat or wordforge or non-toxic those are my three stores i should do an ad i'll do an ad sometime on my podcast and then you'll see it and i have my websites open i have my podcast website open because i'm apparently unable to close things i have some things about seo that's another sort of Uh, learning curve, I feel like. Honestly, I feel like I should know it. And I also feel like, again, it's attention that I don't know that I want to spend on that. Who knows? It's out there. Oh, and then I've written a book. And my book is called The Care and Feeding of Your Nonprofit. And I am looking for an agent right now. So if you know any, do let me know. Nonfiction. And so I've got a couple tabs open about how to write a pitch letter, how to, you know, approach an agent, finding finding people that you have to make sure that the person you approach is a person who does this kind of work. They don't want to be, you know, somebody who does science fiction romance does not want to hear about a business book about nonprofits. It's a waste of their time. And I don't it's a waste of my time. So all in all. Yeah. And those are my tabs. And I just, I really cut them down because I think I have about a hundred open (laughs) and I should go through them. Although, yeah, they're kind of my own little, they're, they're my own tiny shame looking at me from, from Chrome. I think I'll shrink it again. And that's this week's episode. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you have any questions or you'd like me to go over anything, if you have any book recommendations, I like to do, I really like to do books on this podcast that are about work, community, or creativity. Those are kind of the three. Oh, and I will say those are my three values that I did in that Brene Brown book. Although I felt like work wasn't really a value. So I did courage because I think it's important to be courageous at work. Fun is one of my values. It's really hard. There's like, you know, there's a million words for values and you're like all of them. Fun is one, but I actually bundled it in with creativity because I find creativity fun and I find fun, more fun if it's a creative endeavor, creative process. And I thought, well, since we're defining things, I get to define it. That's it. Join me next week. I will have on another guest. Uh, I can't remember which one, but I've got a lot of new people coming. And thanks for spending time with me. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com. That's with the number 9 to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, 
at 9to Thrive, and Facebook at Working 9to Thrive. Thanks for listening.